Welcome to another episode of Legally Unfiltered. This is attorney Franz Borkhardt. I'm here with attorney Richard Sprinkle, um, bringing you topics in the media and topics that affect your life. Uh, This podcast is all about the law, and this week we're going to be talking about plea bargaining, and more particularly, we're going to be talking about trial tax. That's T-A-X, tax. So recently in the NACDL, that's the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers um, website, they published a report. And the report dealt with Sixth Amendment right to trial and how that's being eroded um, by different means and mechanisms by by prosecutors, judges. Um, And part of the report dealt with trial tax. And trial tax is is a fancy way or an unfancy way of saying that there are some places in this in this great country of ours, um, 50 states, federal court. There are some places where you are penalized for going to trial. Um, Let me give you the landscape of this, Richard. So essentially, in in the perfect world, 99 percent of all cases don't go to trial. So most cases do plead out. But there is a scenario in certain courts throughout the country where either the judge or the prosecutor says to you as 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 a defendant, if you go to trial, even though you may be eligible for probation or even though I'm 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 offering you this great deal right now, if you go to trial, if you go to trial, I'm going to punish you. And it may not be as blatant as as that. But the the consequence may be. And and by that, I mean, let's say you try a misdemeanor or a felony where you're probation eligible and after the trial, you're found guilty. And so the judge then gives you jail time rather than giving you probation or the prosecutor may do something or ask for jail time. So that's what we're talking about today is the the Sixth Amendment right to, to trial, your constitutional right to have a trial, a fair trial. And then what happens when you're threatened or or coerced? arm twisted into plea bargaining to something um, because the the threat is that if you don't, then you may get a worse sentence. Now, on top of all this, another factor of this is now now understand I'm talking about this in the, con- in the context of, of an individual that may be guilty. There is also very much something we need to talk about, which is do innocent people sometimes take deals and waive their right to go to trial because the consequence is so stringent and and can be terrible, whether it's jail, whether it's registry as a sex offender or something else, they take a deal to something that they didn't do because of the risk associated with going to trial. So that's where we start. Okay, Richard. So let's talk about the first topic. The first topic is, of course, the, 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 the what happens, what happens when you are about to go to trial and you're told, hey, if you go to trial, this judge may punish you. Is that okay? Well, that's when you have to make the decision. Do I have a really strong case in my favor or do I want to spin the wheel? Well, right. And, 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 and let, let's, let's divide the, let's divide the, 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 the discussion into the scenario where you are guilty as the day is long and going to trial is, is an exercise in futility, but you have the right to do that with the other side of the spectrum where let's say you are innocent and you have a le- legitimate issue as to guilt and innocence. And, and let's not even use the I word. Let's say there's there's reasonable doubt such that there might be a trier fact might say not guilty. We're going to leave the I word alone for a second. Not guilty, reasonable doubt. OK, so we're stratifying. We're, we're dividing guilty, guilty, act of futility and then possibly not guilty because there's a reasonable doubt. And keep in mind, your right to trial constitutionally speaking, doesn't change no matter which side you're on on that coin. So let's let's start with the first one. 
and I say we because I believe that we feel the same way about this, Richard. If you have a legitimate argument for reasonable doubt and the prosecutor is 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 not giving you a good offer or, or is giving you an offer and you say, hey, there's reasonable doubt here. I believe and, and I think, Richard, you believe that you should have a right to go to trial and there should be no adverse consequence other than being found guilty for going to trial. Fair, fair, fair. Absolutely. Okay. You have the right to the trial. There's no reason why you should face a stiffer penalty just because you exercise that right. Correct. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, that other that other category we talked about is arguably complete waste of time. Arguably, guilt is a foregone conclusion. Let's say the scenario where there's DNA, there's a video, um, you confess four different ways, but you still have this constitutional right to trial. Okay. And so you go to trial and the prosecutor or the judge says, we're going to punish you for wasting the court's time. Um, for wasting resources, for wasting citizens' time. Um, across the country, for the most part, everybody seems to be in the judicial system and in the criminal justice system. Everybody seems to be okay with that. And I, th- I think that goes back to when we were all little kids and you did something wrong. You know you did something wrong and your parents come to you, your father, your mother, and says, did you do it? Come clean and things will go much easier for you. Right. And, and in the federal system, by the way, and for those for those who are wondering, in the federal system, this is kind of the landscape. If you plead guilty, you get what's called acceptance of responsibility points and acceptance of responsibility points are, are deducted from your guideline range and you get a better essentially you should theoretically get a better sentence now spectrum again we have on one side of the, of the coin we have the, the the individual that is guilty as day is long we have on the other end, end of the spectrum we have the guy that may have reasonable doubt and, and and a good argument for not guilty what happens if you fall in the middle and what's where everybody really right usually let's falls. say you fall in the middle And by the way, as a good criminal defense attorney, I always tell prosecutors, you got to give me some kind of an offer. If if I'm in no different of a position to try the case than I would be to plead guilty as as to what you're offering, then that's an invitation to try the case, especially if I'm in the middle. If there's there's potentially an argument for reasonable doubt or you're not giving any kind of incentives. And by the way, plea bargaining works. It's like basic negotiations. Richard, you've been in sales before. Absolutely. Basic negotiations. Everybody theoretically should win something. And sometimes everybody, if it's a good negotiation, everybody should be giving up something, it's right? The definition of a compromise. Right, exactly. And, and you know, I really, you know, I tell, I tell young law students and I tell defendants all the time, good pleas are good offers. We feel like we've won a whole bunch on. Just offers are sometimes where everybody kind of feels like, mm, we're giving up something. Okay, that's the difference between a good offer or good plea in the mind of a defendant and a quote unquote just offer sometimes, which is different. Maybe Um, it can be the same thing, but it could be it could be, hey, we're balancing something. The prosecution or the government's giving up some things and and the client may end up having to do some jail time or and everybody's dissatisfied. But overarchingly, it's a better offer or better resolution than something else. So I've always said, if you don't give me something to work with that I can justify not taking the time and energy to try the case, I'm going to try the case. However, if I'm in the middle, not on one side, not on the other side, if I'm in the middle and there's a reasonable offer and I'm in a place where I know that my client will be punished or taxed or or there will be some kind of retribution for going to trial, 
I have to advise my client that, right? So, so what are we left with? We're, we're left with the question of, well, how do you know what to do in that situation? You know, how do you know, you know, and Richard asked me this question before we started recording is how do you know landscape wise? How do you know if you're in a place where, where you're going to get punished for going to trial? That's a fair question, right? Sure. I mean, it, let's say you're not in your home parish or county or jurisdiction. You're, you've just took the phone call. You've got to represent a client who is three counties away. Um, you don't know the judge there. You don't know the prosecutor there or parish, however, whatever state you're living in. You don't know the landscape of that courtroom. So you're not sure what you're going to be walking into at that point. So a seasoned and initiated criminal defense attorney and a seasoned and initiated prosecutor will have enough experience with a particular judge to know, is this a judge that has a quote unquote trial tax? And by trial tax, again, we mean taxation for going to trial, an additional penalty. And we're not talking, by the way, we're not talking about maybe some higher court costs, which makes complete sense and probably will be never paid by an indigent defendant. We're talking about, hey, you're probation eligible. We should give you probation, but you went to trial. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you in jail for a little while. So good experienced defense attorneys and prosecutors are going to know based on, hey, this is Judge Susie or this is Judge Bob. I know the landscape. And then in the same breath, they know the judges that that don't punish as a result of going to trial. I I know lots of judges that will tell you before you go to trial, hey, I'm not going to punish your guy or your client. Um for going to trial, you know, that's their constitutional right. And and I guess from a, it's acceptable for right now. I mean, we, we allow it in our country, in our criminal justice system, but the question becomes, is that right? Is it right that you should be punished for going to trial? Okay. So, so the way go, before we go there, first of all, going back to Richard's question but off air was, was how do you know? Well, you just kind of know you ha- you got to ask around. You got, you may even, sometimes I ask the judge, I'll say, judge, we have a legitimate issue of reasonable doubt in this case. This is what our position is. This is going to be what our defense is without giving all my cards. My client is genuinely concerned that, that if we go to trial and we lose or we don't prevail, your honor will be upset as a result of that. I've had that conversation. It's an awkward, uncomfortable conversation. And and I'll say, judge, I just need to know what the landscape is. And and some judges will tell you, you know, well, Mr. Borkhart, I don't know enough about the facts right now, but you know, if I hear something in this trial that, that doesn't rub me the right right way, I may I may hold it against your client or I may consider that in sentencing. And, and I think if they use the magical phrase, a fact that I discovered during trial may affect my mindset towards sentencing, that's okay, constitutionally. So going back, is it right? I gotta tell you, um, I'm not in the business of wasting court's times, Richard, but I got to tell you, it really rubs me the wrong way that you're going to punish someone for exercising a constitutional right that when we plea bargain or when we plead them, we go over that right and we say, nobody's forcing you to plead guilty today, right? You're doing this freely and voluntarily. And by the way, anytime you do a plea, ladies and gentlemen, that's a part of the conversation. We call it a boykin. We call it a plea colloquy. That conversation goes on between the judge and the defendant. Nobody's forcing you to do this, right, Mr. Smith? Nobody's, you're doing this free and voluntarily. Well, you know, that's- You're not under the influence of any drugs or right, alcohol. Right, It's, it, we're not being genuine. Well, it's because it's essentially a contract between the state and the defendant. Right. So you have to make sure that you don't have any of the vices of consent there. And it's got to uh, it's it's got to be completely above board. It's about as genuine 
when we know that we're going to punish somebody for going to trial, it's about as genuine as when an attorney stands up in front of a jury that they're picking and say, we just want fair people. We just want 12 fair and impartial people, which is complete and utter horseshit, by the way, because because what I really want is I don't want a fair person. Mm-hmm. I want a person that's going to rule in my client's favor. And for starters, fair right. is just a place with right. corn dogs and cotton so, candy. So the idea, the concept of right to a fair trial, the right to a jury of your peers that, that should come unfair fettered, unpunished uh, for exercising that idea, that lofty goal, that aspirational position in the world, the rubber meets the road when it comes in, in, in conflict or in connection with a judge that says, you know what? I'm going to punish your client if I feel like he was wasting the court's time. Now, again, Again, we're not talking. And again, the reason I made such a point, Richard, of talking about that spectrum of different defendants is because because I think the way I feel about it, it really does depend on what kind of defendant we're talking about. If I have a defendant that's guilty as day as long and the prosecutor's offering a fair and reasonable resolution that is so fair and unreasonable that we're all looking at each other like, dude, you'd be a fool not to take this offer. Okay. I'm not saying that that person should not end up in the same. I'm not saying that they should end up in the same position of the great, fantastic offer, but I'm also saying you shouldn't punish them for going to trial. But it's easier for me to wrap my brain around that on that defendant than it is to wrap my brain around the defendant that they have a genuine issue where we're like, man, this was a self-defense case. And and look, the jury didn't believe that it was self-defense, but I could see how a reasonable mind might think it's self-defense. That bothers me that that individual is going to get punished. Right. And you've got cases, too, where the prosecution may be offering a, a lesser a, a lesser charge right. and, and that that may come off the table and the prosecutor may go after the the higher charge at, at trial, in which case is that really a tax? So, so negotiations are generally sometimes a moving target. Some prosecutors, and, I, and I've done this as a former prosecutor, my best offer was sometimes on the front end where I'd say, listen, this is my offer. This is the best offer I'm going to do. And this offer has a shelf life to it. And after that shelf life expired, then the offer became something else. That wasn't punishing the defendant, but but if I was being extremely reasonable in my offer, they needed to take that in my mind. But in the same breath, generally speaking, as a prosecutor, I didn't punish somebody for going to trial. Now, that all being said, sometimes the issue with taking a resolution or, or, or that shelf life conversation we're having. Sometimes the problem, Richard, is if you're a defense attorney, and particularly if you're a public defender, it takes you a while to build a rapport with your client. Mm-hmm. I mean, and look, folks, Richard and I represent indigent federal uh, defendants in, in the Criminal Justice Act cases or what we call CJA cases. And the conversation we have with our client on day one where we don't have discovery and we haven't gone and, and worked the file up and we have no rapport goes much differently. Agree or disagree, Richard, than it does on month six where we're like, hey, man, this is how they're going to convict you. And this is the offer. And maybe you need to consider taking that offer. I mean, that conversation goes differently, right? Because. Oh, it does. It, it takes it, it's, it's human nature. If, if you're uh, if you're sitting in jail awaiting trial and your public defender walks in front of you, you might be a tad apprehensive at first. You, you, it, it's complete human nature that takes a while to knock down the barriers and it takes a while to get the lines of communication open. And because of that, it takes a little while sometimes before uh, defendants start opening up to the possibility to right. taking that deal you're presenting. And look. I've represented human beings. I've represented human beings where 
I told them from day one, they're accused of burglary. Oh man, that, that victim ain't showing up. That victim ain't showing up. And we're sitting there picking a jury and the victim is sitting in the courtroom and they're like, man, they're really going to make, make me go through this trial and I'm going to get convicted. And I'm like, what do you think I've been telling you for the last, you know, eight months? So what do we do with this? Do we do we say we do we just acknowledge the fact that that, hey, look, it's just the nature of what we're dealing with in this in this criminal justice system of ours, that that there is sometimes a trial tax. Should there be constitutional challenges to it? Should should you know, does that become a right to fair trial, excessive punishment crossover? I mean, I mean, I'm not as swift on my constitutional amendments as I should be, Richard, but there's this constitutional amendment that deals with 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 excessive punishment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in, I mean that's that's in there, right? Yeah. And so, does it become a constitutional issue? Does it become something that defense attorneys need to start, you know, safeguarding against? Do judges need to be do judges need to be challenged about it, or do we just kind of keep living in this world where we're living in? I mean, I don't know what the solution is to this. I, I think you'd have a strong, <clears throat> strong argument against it being an excessive punishment violation, because typically those have to be somewhat shocking in nature. Uh, say, for example, someone committed a crime that deserves one year at hard labor and the judge comes down with 30. That would be shocking. That would be completely well, out of the box. Let's take this scenario, Richard, of you're probation eligible before you go to trial. Let's say you're accused of, of, of felony theft and you're, you're accused of taking something that didn't belong to you. And let's say it's $5,000 and you're probation eligible before trial. You go to trial, you mount a defense, you have a right to go to trial, you use that right to go to trial, and after trial, you're convicted. You're still probation eligible, but the judge all of a sudden, not because a new fact came out, let's say that the facts are the facts and nothing really changes, but the judge looks at you and says, you know what, I feel like you wasted our time, and so I'm not giving you probation, I'm giving you jail time. That would be completely wrong. Right. But how often is the judge literally going to look at the newly convicted individual there and say, you wasted the court's time? Well, it may be more subtle than that. It may be more subtle. It may be that, you know, you know, having heard the evidence, having listened, I've, I've decided that you're not a good candidate for probation for whatever reason. He or she, the judge, he or she may never say, I'm punishing you with a trial tax. They may, in fact, just say, this is my, my, my decision on sentencing is X, Y, and Z, and it's not probation. Now, keep in mind, Let's go. Let's let's take a step back. Ninety percent, ninety nine percent of cases don't go to trial. Only the worst of the worst cases go to trial. Murders, rapes. Um, most cases result in plea bargaining, which is a good thing. There's another side of this coin, right? The other side of this coin is is that we want defendants, particularly guilty defendants, to work their business out to get good offers to get good resolutions. And so plea bar- we're not saying that plea bargaining isn't a, a bad thing. And, oh, it's and, a good thing. And, and in fact, yeah, we agree on this. Very yeah. Good thing. And in fact, sometimes leverage over defendants isn't necessarily a bad thing. Hey, you're charged with armed robbery, but I'm going to let you plead to a felony theft, which is a non-crime of violence, and I'll let you have probation. But if you go to trial in Louisiana, armed robbery carries 10 to 99. And if you go to trial and you lose, though, you're you're at a mandatory minimum of 10 years. That kind of leverage happens every day. I don't think there's necessarily anything bad with that. Um, And look, Louisiana has an habitual offender law. 
Okay. What that means is if you have a certain amount of prior felonies, those felonies can be used to enhance future felonies or present felonies and if you're convicted. And sometimes leverage is used in the sense of, hey, look, you're a third offender and 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 we think we have you, you know, with proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you go to trial, I'm gonna file that habitual offender bill or that multi, what we call the multi-bill. I'm gonna file that multi-bill against you and you're gonna get more jail time. That kind of leverage maybe isn't a bad thing. But in the same breath, maybe there maybe we all need to slow down and start asking the question of in a system where we look at human beings and say, you're entering this plea freely and voluntarily, nobody's forced you or coerced you to do this. In a system where we're asking defendants those questions, are we being disingenuous sometimes in some courts and some places throughout this country where you are being coerced to take a plea? You are being forced. Your arm is being twisted because the truth of the matter is things will get gravely worse for you if the judge thinks you're wasting time and you are, quote unquote, taxed for wasting time and going to trial. You can't honestly look yourself in the mirror and say that coercion is not happening. That's the whole point behind giving them a better deal. The the defendants giving right. the defendants a better deal. They are being coerced to and sign. And to that. some degree, we're okay with that kind of coercion. I mean, and we wouldn't even call it coercion. We'd say, you know, what's the difference between here's the here's the fundamental question. What is the difference between coercion and a fan freaking tastic deal that is so good, that is so marvelous, that is you cannot refuse it because it's so good. What's the difference between those two deals? Absolutely Are those nothing? Yeah, it it it, it you know it's Either hard. Way you're being enticed to take an action. So if somebody gives them a great deal, look, it's our job to get the most favorable outcome for our clients. And if that means, listen, guy, they are offering you a sweetheart deal. Here's my pen. Sign it, please. So the hard the hard thing to do in our line of work, at least for me, is that. It is difficult when you have a client um, that is, quote unquote, innocent in your mind, that's being offered something that means a, a plea of something, a plea of something to where they're saying they're guilty. Even in circumstances where it's a best interest plea, and a best interest plea, folks, is basically when you stand before a court and say, look, all things being what they are, it is in my best interest to plea. And if we go to trial, the, the state or the government would be able to find me guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of these charges. You know, it it's tough when you plead somebody to something and they're innocent. And you believe they're innocent, you think they're innocent, and maybe you know they're in your gut they're innocent. That's tough. And it happens sometimes. I've I've represented individuals who are accused of sex offense cases, uh, molesting children, molesting their own children. And I believe they're innocent. I believe that they didn't do something. And maybe throughout the course of negotiations, we get a great offer where they have to plead to a misdemeanor that's a non-registry, non-sex offender registry misdemeanor resolution. And they plead to it because it's in their best interest, because they don't want to be convicted of a felony or or they don't want to be be branded with an iron fire of being a sex offender. And they do it. And sometimes they do it on my advice. They plead guilty to something they didn't do because it's simply in their best interest to do that. And for those of you out there that think, and maybe this is a different episode, why would you ever plead guilty to something you didn't do? I would never plead guilty to something I didn't do. I would trust my faith in the justice system. You are disillusioned because we know 
We know that human beings get convicted of crimes they didn't do. We just read an article. Richard and I were just talking about an article in Florida. Florida again. Where they were basically trying to put, it's always Florida. It's always Florida. They were trying to put somebody to death for the 28th time. There was multiple confessions to the contrary. Just to be clear, we're, they weren't trying to put the same guy to death for the right, 28th right, right, time. Right. 28 Sorry. different people. Sorry, I'll clarify. I get amped up about Florida. <laughs> but 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 the point is, this was a case where they had they had a they had multiple confessions from somebody else. They had what is it, an absence of physical evidence and all this other stuff. An absence of any DNA placing him at the so, scene. So if you're a firm card-carrying member of society that says, I would never plead guilty to something I didn't do, and I would trust in the justice system, I would invite you to shadow me for a week and see what happens in the justice system. Because sometimes, while I believe that most of the time the justice system gets it right, sometimes the justice system very much gets it wrong. And sometimes, despite our best efforts as, as good advocates for our clients, and sometimes despite my zealous representation of my clients, Innocent folks get convicted. And sometimes it's a matter of simple math. If you've got an individual who's already been in jail six to nine months and their sentence was going to be somewhere between six and 12 months. Right. Yeah. OK. If you gave me the lesser deal and, and that means a six month sentence. I, OK. Yeah, maybe I'll plead guilty. Do it just so I can leave today. Think about the value of going home. Oh, my gosh. Uh, let's say you've been in jail for a long time. And I tell you. Plead guilty to something. Maybe it's a misdemeanor. Maybe it's just a credit for time served. You're you're charged with a horrible crime. And I tell you, you can go home. You don't have to be in a in a human cage anymore. You don't have to be in a place where you you can't really sleep well because you're worried about your well-being, your safety, both both to your own person and also to the people out there that you love and care about that you can't take care of while you're out and about. You can go home. We like going home, don't we? Big time. Yeah. Going home is something we kind of do every day. Right. Think about when that think about that being in jeopardy. Think about the idea of that being in jeopardy, Richard, to where you can't go home. And then all of a sudden someone says you do this and you can go home. Is it leverage? Is it coercion or is it the way we resolve cases sometimes? Not trying to be all doom and gloom, just just something that's kind of out there that, you know, as, as defense attorneys, as, as a former prosecutor, it's something that keeps me up at night sometimes because, you know, look, there is that tightrope between appropriate leverage and, and coercion such that it's a trial tax. And it was out in the NACDL um, website and they published a report about it recently. So we were thinking about it, ladies and gentlemen, we wanted to share it with you. That's about it for this episode of Legally Unfiltered. This has been attorney Franz Borkart and attorney Richard Sprinkle. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. The views and opinions expressed in Legally Unfiltered do not constitute legal advice. If you would like legal advice on the topics that we've discussed, send us money. That's right. Go ahead and retain us. Do not kids try this at home.